Hello, and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. I'm Charles Hughes Huff, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry. Here at the Particular Good Podcast, we see particular goods as avenues into a shared understanding of the good. Today, we're going to talk with Mari Leonard Fleckman, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Holy Cross University, about her love of the particular good of the Hebrew Bible with its varied textual sources, historical embeddedness, and ongoing theological relevance. Mari is the author of The House of David, Between Political Formation and Literary Revision. Her forthcoming book is tentatively titled Languaging Landscape, The Shaping of Identities and Borders in the Iron Age Shephelah. In this book, she engages with archaeology, anthropology, and art history to explore the social composition of Israel's Iron Age Shephela in relation to changing textual representations through the first century CE. Mari has written many scholarly articles and pieces in Catholic publications like Commonweal and America Magazine. Without further ado, here's Mari. So I want to start by asking you um, how you became interested in studying the Hebrew Bible. I saw that you are uh, Wash U undergrad. I know about WashU. Lived in St. Louis last year. Uh, spent a lot of time in the library. But you were Spanish <laughs> and English there, right? I was, yeah. So how did you make that uh, transition from from that uh, undergrad to a PhD in Hebrew Bible? You know, I've um, I've always been interested in languages and cultures and um, you know the relationship between literature and history, and so. You know, when I was in undergrad, in undergrad, um, my primary interest was magic realism and kind of Latin American mm. literature. And the the power, you know, on the one hand, magic realism is, I mean, it's just it, it takes you into a completely alternative reality in some ways. But there's always kind of just enough semblance of something that we're used to to kind of connect us back into, you know our notion of reality mm -hmm. but the but what's so remarkable about um magic realism is that it, it has had this immense power um and even actually before kind of magic realism came on the scene but literature in general in latin america has had this immense power to actually um you know kind of change history and kind of um uh, to mold politics. And there's like a phenomenal number of um, Latin American novelists who became presidents of their country. So I've always had this kind of, for me, the boundaries between literature and history, culture, languages, they've, they've always been very malleable. Mm. And so, um, so I went into the Peace Corps after college uh, because I really thought that I was going to end up getting a PhD in Latin American studies or maybe um, go into international policy work or something like that. And, um, and it was really in the Peace Corps that I fell in love with the Bible and kind of uh, changed my whole path forward and ended up kind of going to New York and going to seminary, Union Theological Seminary after that. Okay. Um, and so the Hebrew Bible, for me, it was kind of like, my way in from all of the things that I, you know, already loved and was already, was already doing, um, in my undergraduate degree. And even before that, and also, um, you know, my family is kind of mixed Christian and Jewish. And right. so there was, for me, the Hebrew Bible is always this kind of way of connecting back to connecting into 
kind of the Jewish side of my family. Um, you know, Hebrew's always been a natural language for me and mm-hmm. kind of it's it's kind of, you know, all like the West Semitic kind of linked languages. Um, so that you know, that's the short story. Interesting. This is very interesting. So you you found in in the Hebrew Bible, while in the Peace Corps, uh, the same kind of enlivening relationship between literature and life in a way that you did with magical realism. Yeah, that's exactly right. Huh, that's great. Yeah. There's a there's a, a beautiful literary quality to the Hebrew Bible that I think is quite obvious to anyone who's studied it or even who's read the the Bible growing up. But um, that also for me was something that uh, drew me right into studying Hebrew was the the sheer literary magic of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you uh, went to Union and then continued at uh, New York University. Is that that's correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so you studied with Dan Fleming in that case? I did. I studied with Dan Fleming and Mark Smith at NYU. And, and before that, I'm you know equally proud to say that I studied with David Carr. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and I also studied with Mary Boys, who does more kind of Jewish Christian relations. But, um, you know, I had, I've had kind of marvelous mentors all the way through my graduate education. I'm really, really grateful for that. That's really cool. Yeah, it was a very vibrant place to be, I would say. Probably, you know, similar to Chicago with all the surrounding institutions and just the intellectual landscape. It's, you know, pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it's fun to be in grad school in that kind of environment. Um, so you at NYU, you were of course in a program that was very conversant with both ancient Near Eastern or ancient Middle Eastern, um, archeology span and languages and history, and then had a particular focus on Israelite and Hebrew Bible literature and the development of that, uh, together and your book coming out of that. And we'll describe for our listeners uh, the House of David with Fortress Press, 2016. The House of David between political formation and literary revision. So here you have this uh, literature and politics coming together in your first book. And um, I understand from talking to you that you are pursuing another project that also relates to literature and history and the relationship, mm-hmm. and I wondered if you would talk with us about that. About the, the new project in yeah. particular? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Sure, yeah. Again, in, so, in some ways, um, there's a natural progression from my first book into my second book in the sense that, you know, I'm still, I mean, I, I guess the word obsessed is probably the, the most accurate term. I'm <laughs> still just obsessed with the relationship between literature and history and society. And I, I think I've only really been able to articulate this in the past few years as I've gotten kind of more perspective on my own, you know, past and history. Um, So I don't know that I would have been able to say this about the first book at the time, but looking at it, it was kind of my first attempt coming out of a very serious um, kind of historical um, I would say graduate program like history, philology, 
um, it was my first attempt to really kind of grapple with, well, what can you do with the Bible, which is highly literary set of documents that are, you know, completely entangled compositionally? Um, what can you really do with them? What, what kind of historical statements can you make? And so yeah. it's kind of an attempt. It was an attempt to do that with all the things that we have. And you, you go through the book and it's like, it's almost like, you know, the kitchen sink is in there. It's like every <laughs> possible resource that we have in the ancient Middle East for understanding the house of David kind of comes to bear in that book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's rich in, so the the house of David formulation as the house of throughout inscriptional evidence and archaeological setting, and then you bring in the literary tradition as well, um, right? This right. is yeah. And can you describe like what the basic thesis is for how the those David traditions in the Bible relate to the sort of inscriptional archaeological evidence? <laughs> I was afraid you were going to ask this question. You know, it's funny. I had to actually, I had to go back and pick the book off the shelf. And I was like, in preparing for this interview, I was like reading through it, trying to remember my arguments. I mean, this is just how far I've distanced myself from, from this book. Um, I don't know how I'd be curious, you know, I think it's a whole other conversation people's relationships with their first books, especially when those first books are really so close to the dissertation form um, and what comes next. But I have a pretty complicated relationship with my, my first book. Um, so, I mean, the first thing is I don't really do much archaeologically. Okay. And that's a big change. That's actually a big change between this first, my, you know, the house of David and what I'm working on right now is that I really am pushing myself now to understand archaeology um, because I think the land and the space, not only is it a good kind of a, a grounding tool for right. trying to understand some of the historical questions, but also, you know, the Bible is obsessed with space and land. And I think we have such a, as text scholars, we can have such a kind of orientation to the philological and the temporal kind of historical dimensions that we forget the spatial dimensions and how important that is. Yeah. Um, but it's not really part of that first book um so i would say there there i'm not sure this is really going to answer your question it might kind of very intelligently skirt around your question <laughs> so you can come back to it if you want oh, good. Uh, but i would say you know the the there are two kind of main elements to the house of david book that ground it and are kind of the basis of investigation and on the one side are the texts the, the biblical texts um specifically the books of samuel and um, my observation that Judah in the David story is a kind of a peripheral element to the whole narrative. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's, it's mentioned very infrequently and it, there's no, in my view, other people would argue against this. There's no cohesive narrative. If you just pick apart all the Judah you know, references, you can't construct some kind of cohesive narrative around that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas you can with Israel, yeah. you know? And so that, for me, that overturned one of the more recent arguments that, you know, David was king of Judah um, and king of Israel never, like, you know, never connected to, to what you would call Israel, whatever that even means. Right, right, right. Um, so that was kind of one part of it. And the other part was the Teldan inscription. 
Yeah. And this really interesting parallel between the King of Israel and the House of David. Um, you know, generally that has been kind of perceived to just be, you know, synonymous or, you know, they're kind of parallel to each other in the same thing. So the House of David is synonymous with Judah. Right. Um, and and I kind of took the alternative approach was that, which was that needs to be explained a little bit more what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense. And, yeah. So those two things really kind of inspired the project, which was to understand more of the political development of the House of David and what its relationship is to Judah and to the literary history of the books of Samuel and, you know, to Aramean polities in the first millennium, also called the House of, you know, so-and-so, the House of X. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very fascinating. And thanks for going down that path. I was, I was curious, you know, so <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I'd like to say it's my pleasure, but I'm not entirely sure it is. No, no it's fine. I'm joking. I'm joking, Charles. <laughs> so how, what is this, what's the topic of the second book? And you, you, you mentioned that you've developed, and I have to say, I, I love this, this focus on spatiality within texts. That's something that, as uh, you know, my my work was on punishment in the priestly source, and I had to understand that spatially because so much of it is related to the temple spheres and so on. And I'm, uh, or not the temple, the the, the tent of meeting, and then the radiating mm. spheres of holiness and um, mm-hmm. the wilderness and so on. But I'm teaching a class this semester where I'm asking students to use spatiality within the text as the primary lens for their interpret interpretation of it. Um, it's called hellscapes. Wow. And we're starting with a reading on spatial theory in literary studies and then going through and, and, you know, reading part of Gilgamesh and the Odyssey and Hebrew Bible stuff and all the way through modern literature that depicts um, purgatory, hell, wilderness, uh, or the city as a hellscape kind of a thing, and um, but really with a focus on space within literature. So I'm I'm very sympathetic to that, <laughs> and uh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that to hear you say that. That's um, it's very cool. So yeah, what is uh, what is the um, what's the current project about? So the current project, the my kind of elevator speech for it, it's a reevaluation of textual representations of the social landscape. So who people were, social groups, how they related in the Shephela or the lowlands of Israel in the Iron oh, yeah. Age. Mm-hmm. And the reason why, so the questions are broader, and I can kind of go back to that, but the reason, the focus in the Shephela, why I'm focusing in that region is because in, re- in recent cent- uh, decades, it's become one of the most intensely excavated regions in the world. And the archaeological evidence arguably points to, you know, what like Aaron Mayer, for example, would call an entangled space, meaning that uh, identities are much more kind of intricate, confusing, into, you know, intermingled than we might think, and the categories don't abide, or the who people were don't, does not abide by the categories, the limited categories that we have right. in our, in our textual sources, the, you know, including the Bible, the Neo-Syrian royal annals, you know, all, all the different sources that we have. Yeah. 
And, and so I'm attempting to kind of come in, you know, but, you know, text scholars, I think this area is really kind of ripe for um, a textual reevaluation. So my goal is kind of in conversation with archaeology to take this notion of entanglement and to uh, explore how the texts themselves are kind of entangled objects and they they themselves represent entangled scribal representations of mm-hmm. this this area and the people. Um, and they're also compositionally entangled sources. Um, so, you know, Aaron Mayer has this great statement about how to understand the Philistines, you know, which is such a problematic word um, right. for all of these different groups of people who are arriving somewhere in the Iron Age transition. You know, he, he expl- kind of explains that the material evidence demonstrates that the Philistines were kind of peoples who were in a constant process of becoming, yeah. in a way. Mm. Um, and I think the, the especially the biblical sources, too, are kind of in a constant process of becoming in terms of how they imagine and interpret um, who people were and how they related to each other you know, what kind of ideologies those also reveal um, in terms of the, the, you know, the scribes, you know, the scribes themselves, how that changes over time. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, It's very interesting. Now I want to ask you a couple of clarifying questions. Um, What is the Shefela? (laughs) (laughs) So it actually means kind of low, it's the lowlands. And so, you know, the word itself, like all words that we have, are laden, they're value laden. So in this sense, the Shefela is a kind of a Highlanders, like Judahite perspective, looking down into this area that's kind of somewhere between the, the Mediterranean coastal plain, which is where we say that the, the so-called Philistines mm-hmm. kind of resided in the Iron Age, and then what we would call the Judahite highlands um, to the east. So, but once you hit the Shefela, I mean, there's a pretty clear kind of topographical division once you start to kind of head up into the Judahite hill country. But between the Shefela and the coastal plain, it's just flat. Mm-hmm. So there's no real topographical distinction there. And so, you know, it, it's just fascinating in terms of archaeological evidence and on a site-by-site basis. Um, the intermingling of pots, of course, and our and our designs, and um, you know how what houses look like, um, and it that there's just this kind of constant flux and kind of intermingling of populations in that area. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to define who people were, and you know, and who they were socially, of course, is a really different question than what's going on politically. So we often kind of like define people based on you know, who we think had control over the Shvela at a certain time, which doesn't, is a little bit too simplistic as well. Have you been doing archaeological work there yourself? I know you've done some digs recently. Is that where you've been digging? No, I have uh, dug at Tel Hadid okay. under Ido Koch at, at, um, at Tel Aviv University. So it's not exactly in the Shvela, but Ido is a dear friend and he has very kindly kind of done massive road trips with me to all of the different sites in the region. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I'm a novice. I'm not, I am absolutely not an archaeologist. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm coming at the, arge- at the archaeology from a non-specialist, but someone who knows text very well and is 
deeply respectful of, of what um, archaeologists are doing these days in that region. Yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. So my second clarifying question is, um, when you talk about the entanglement uh, in the biblical text that was part of the scribal tradition, and then mm-hmm. how those entangled texts are representing folks in this area, what, what texts do you have in mind in the Bible? So I've, I'm basically only working with two sites. Um, and I've, before I tell you what these are, I'll build up the suspense. I've chosen these, I've chosen these particular sites because they have published site reports from reputable archaeologists, and they're both part of the ongoing conversation slash debate about who people were and when. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's on the archaeology side. And then on the text side, there is enough really interesting narrative material, specifically narratives, yeah. that reveals this sort of entanglement. So it really kind of pairs, pairs down the site. So I'm only working with Timnah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Samson stories within the book of Judges and also Tamar a little bit uh, in Genesis 38. That's a question of, there's a question of which Timnah that, that particular story refers to. Um, and then uh, Gat or Gath, Philistine Gath. Ah, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, so that's really in Samuel and the David material, a little bit in First Kings. Yeah. Um, and then I do have a chapter that's specifically on women in the Shephelah. So that's really about. So I've I have one chapter that's just about Samson, and it goes into you know the kind of diachronic studies of. Samson stories and how judges comes together. Um, but I have another chapter that's just on the women. So that looks at the unnamed woman from somewhere around Timnah and Delilah, mm-hmm. who's somewhere in the Sorek Valley and Tamar in Genesis 38. Okay. Um, so, so that's an, you know, it's an interesting mix. It's a nice mix to play with. That is, that's, that's very fun. Entanglement uh, itself. So we're, 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 I'm thinking about uh, archaeological typologies and their development not being as straightforward. Like here's this kind of pot and this kind of polity, therefore Philistine. But rather that we have a whole different sets of culture, cultural things that we may identify as this or that that are actually found together, right? So they're entangled. Uh, the, the social representation of folks within a particular polity may be quite complex, significant or insignificant. So we can't say that people are pots or pots are people and so on. That's kind of what my mind goes to when you talk about entanglement within archaeological mm-hmm. evidence. And maybe you can expand or correct that understanding for me. But then also for texts, you have this kind of representational possibility for entanglement. Um, how are they portrayed? How does that map on to social understanding? Are we talking about the way that texts materially came together as well? Or how, how does this all play out? Uh, yeah, so just to start with the, the text themselves, I'm really kind of using that word entanglement in two different ways for the texts. One is just that, that you can see um, a real diversity of perspectives on who people were or mm-hmm. a diversity of representation. So I'm using the word entanglement to kind of re- represent the entanglement of perspectives that yeah. you see, kind of scribal perspectives. Um, and, and then also I, I like this idea that the texts are 
kind of entangled, compositionally entangled evidence themselves. Mm -hmm. And Mm so, you know, for example, if I'm looking at the Samson stories, what's going on in the kind of core Samson stories of Judges 14, 15, maybe 16, um, where he's not really defined. He doesn't have, he's totally independent. He's kind of running around untethered in this landscape without a real home to speak of. He's not fighting for a particular polity. That's a, it's a very different kind of representation of who he is and how to understand him. than when you put add in chapter 13, where suddenly he is, you know, a Nazarite, he's, you know, you get the kind of editorial lens of, mm-hmm. of it's kind of tethering him in a sense socially and, and claiming him for Israel in a way. Oh, I see. Yeah. So you can, so you can see how the texts themselves are compositionally entangled objects and not even that, but then the, you know, the, the boundaries between composition history and then reception history, those are also entangled. You know, there's no like real, when you start to explore it, there's no real stop point. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, and and so I'm actually kind of going up into Josephus because Josephus has the first really comprehensive rewriting of kind of both sets of material that I'm working with that don't really appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing, of course, with the Shefela or not doing in his case is also a really interesting window in. Yeah. And then the archeology span is exactly really what you say, you know, like it used, it used to be that, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this information as a non-archeologist. So, you know, um, take it with, take it with the novice grain of salt as you, as you will. But um, it used to be that, you know, people would kind of, you know, take like, Philistine bichrome ware that you could see kind of moving inland from the coast and, and, and kind of map a clear line where you saw that type of pottery and say, oh, well, this pottery is, it might be created locally, like it's not monochrome where it's not being brought in from elsewhere. It might be created locally, but it is, an ex- it is a sign that these people are Philistine, mm-hmm. whatever that, you know, <laughs> just this kind of like boundaried group. And of course, that's all really unraveled in a lot of ways, yeah. uh, important ways that you know, the whole pot, you know pots do not equate with people, um, which works if you think about our realities. Like you can't just take a pottery style and say that maps onto exactly who the maker was behind it. And right, if you uh, enter, <laughs> you enter my apartment, you would be very confused about where, where my <laughs> <would> be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if I could switch directions a little bit, I wanted to talk to you about another publication that you uh, recently put out that I've been reading through. I used it in class last semester. Uh, it is a first of three volumes uh, of commentary on the lectionary called Ponder. It's not exactly, I say it's commentary on the lectionary. It's more of a guided resource for meditating on scripture, either individually or in a community. And um, then reading some solid commentary on it as a part of that process. Um, and so, in this book, in the introduction, you talk about combining aspects of deep personal hearing of scripture with your rigorous intellectual understanding of it. And I'm just curious how this has happened for you. So, you are combining an interest and skill that 
we've been hearing about in archaeology and uh, historical critical work, but also leading Bible study in your home parish. And um, the results has been this publication, and I'd just like to hear more about that. This is, this is such a hard question because uh, I think it's something that I struggle with a lot from a, co- like a couple different places. I mean, the mo- I think the most honest, very short answer is that I do not do a great job of integrating personally. When I am doing serious scholarship, I'm doing serious scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're talking about kind of religious commitments and um, a sense to use kind of religious language, a sense of vocation to a contemporary religious community. I suppose in in that area, it's a little easier, specifically when I have a teaching hat on, to feel like there is some integration because I do feel a real sense of purpose that, um, you know, people in contemporary religious communities need to have good scholarship behind, behind, you know, their interpretations of text. Like, that's a question of kind of integrity and it can be dangerous otherwise. So that's a little bit easier to explain, but I I would say that in my own life, there is certainly a sense of kind of fragmentation there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and also just to be completely honest, when we are, you know, as someone who is still a younger scholar, um, still an assistant professor, you know, to out myself a little bit as doing some of this more popular not just popular, but faith-y, one could say, you know, religious-y mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. publications, that's really scary yeah. because I, you know, because first and foremost, I want people to know me in my scholarly community as a scholar. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a real, I, I don't, of course, you could go back and like dissect that in terms of the history of our field, but, um, but that is just kind of my personal, personal response. So, but, you know, but I will say that there is, for me, there's something that's very grounding about working in a local community Mm -hmm. um, that's similar to teaching, especially teaching undergraduates and trying to demonstrate for people why these texts should matter and how you can use both the mind and the heart. you know, you don't have to shut one off right. in a sense. So that's really important to me. Um, and so this book or this three volume book, it, it actually literally came out of leading a Bible study at my local parish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I led a Bible study for five years um, on the Sunday readings, what we would call the lectionary cycle in the Catholic church. And, you know, after five years, I'd amassed all this information. And so I basically just, you know, went to an editor friend that I have at Liturgical Press and was like, help me, can we do something with it? And he got really excited about the possibilities for actually, you know, by like putting this in book form and, um, and help, you know, giving it to people as a tool for both praying with and then um, thinking seriously about the background to the, these texts. Yeah. I and I'm I'm interested in how to do this, you know, how to think about the text, the Hebrew Bible as a living portion of sacred scripture for for this community in a theological way. 
I got your book. I I was really intrigued by it because what you do is you recommend this um, Lectia Divina and Ignatian meditation uh, at sort of the outset. And so you're not laying down, okay, here's the scholarly thing. Now go off on your by yourself and figure out the way this might apply to, you know, your heart. Rather, you're, you're sort of helping folks along, not in a sort of here's the prescriptive theological meaning of a historical text, but here's a method in which to meditate on this. And then we're going to move into this intellectual discussion of the background um, in a really rigorous way. So I was very intrigued by that. How did you sort of come to this method? Well, I, I have to say, to let you in on, on a little secret, mm-hmm. um, this is also, you know, what you can call, Lex, like Lexio Divina, you know, what you might translate kind of poorly as divine reading of scripture, this very slow, meditative, absorptive quality of reading texts. It is also a very literary style. Yeah, I mean, this is... <laughs> this. This is close textual reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it happens to be my position, like when I'm teaching undergraduates, that really the only way for students to, first of all, have a stake in, in the material themselves, to connect with it themselves, but also to really be able to read it carefully without kind of, you know, exegesis, reading from the text out coming to their interpretations of it from the text out, analyzing from the text out in a way, rather than putting a theological idea onto it. Mm-hmm. That, that can only happen in some ways from very close textual reading, obviously with other tools, so that this is not just like a, you know, whatever I feel like kind sure. of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, so, in, so in pushing a religious community to do Lexio Divina and kind of framing it in a very clear tool that we have in um, Roman Catholicism, not just, I mean, this is a Christian tool and it's not just a Christian tool. It goes back, you know, to Judaism as well. The very careful meditative reading of texts is also a literary reading of texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it keeps people, it kind of keeps people out of their head in this context. It can keep people out of their heads a little bit longer so they're not placing any assumptions or kind of skimming. Um, and it's remarkable what, what folks can catch when they're, when they're practicing that the words that can kind of come alive, you know, I get, I would get like people in their seventies and eighties who, you know, are kind of, um, you know, in, in this, we have a very, I'm not sure what you would call it. It's, um, of a working class parish, you know, and you've got folks coming in who've never really read the Bible carefully before. And suddenly they're asking about different translations and things like this. Mm-hmm. And, and that all really comes out of this, what, what I call a heart centered practice, but in a different world, you could just call close textual reading. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Maybe there, yeah. It might not be quite that simple. <laughs> no, no, I, I like what you're saying. <laughs> I like what you're saying. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It resonated with what does work in a classroom. Meditate, um, <laughs> per se, but but asking them to think carefully and then speak one by one something about the verse that I'm asking about instead of sort of it helps them move from 
abstractions that they already know and sort of pasting them onto the text uh, to sound like a homily, you know, to mm-hmm. working with it, describing what the, t- the text is saying. So, right. yeah, I can see that connection. Right, right. Yeah. And that can also lead to, um, you know, nice conversation, even argumentation, a kind of like a large scale, like Havruta style of conversation that, you know, some some folks aren't really used to doing. Yeah. So. You say in the introduction that some of this kind of goes back into your own research too. I, I'm hearing what you're saying about there being sort of a, okay, here's, I'm going here and doing scholarly work and then I'm coming over here and doing this other kind of thing. But you mentioned in the introduction that this, this, this approach has influenced the, the things you care about broadly in your scholarship as well. And I, I take it, what you mean is, again, that sort of imaginative, literary, deep understanding of text. Right. Yeah, definitely. Like an ability to kind of see things in a fresh way, um, to ask questions that I might not normally ask, uh, that sort of thing. So it does help for that. That's great. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you too, um, you've, you've written some pieces, public forums at Commonweal, American Magazine, et cetera, on praying with a Bible in times of crisis. And one on Julia Norwich, but um, also Psalm 91, and then one bringing uh, your work in Tel Hadid um, to this question. And I'm curious how that's been for you and how you see biblical texts as helpful for Catholics and the public square more broadly during the kind of crisis that we're going through now. Well, uh, I think there, there are two different, there are two different ways at going at, at going at this question. You know, one is from contemporary communities in. So, you know, for the, all of these articles that I've published are on um, kind of intellectual Catholic magazines. Yeah. And, you know, these are for folks who have a stake, kind of a religious stake in the text. And, you know, so to, tr- to try to help them understand how our current situations um, have the texts have ongoing relevance to them in our contemporary situations, I think is really important. And especially the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. The, you know, the Christian Old Testament, which is kind of, as you probably have figured out or know, it's kind of the lowest rung on the ladder of importance. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, which is which is great in some ways because we can get away with a lot more um, in terms of the work that we do. Uh, you know, we're not going to be labeled heretic because we're not dealing with Christology. But um, on the other on the other hand, people often, especially, I'll just speak, you know, specifically for my community, you know, in Roman Catholicism, people don't really know what to do with the Hebrew Bible. They're not, they don't have a sense of connection to it. They don't have a sense of intimacy with it. Um, It's a foreign kind of a specimen. And the only thing, well, very stereotypically and generally, this is not true across the board, but in general, they read it through the lens of the New Testament um, and Jesus. And there's still a whole lot of kind of underlying supersessionist readings, you know, reading the Hebrew Bible through the notion of fulfillment in, in Christ. Um, that's really, to me, I, I see that as a, as a big problem. You know, you, it's, there's, there has to be an understanding and ability to, to connect with the Hebrew Bible on its own, to, to let it speak on its own, um, to recognize that it's a living witness for a number of communities. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think my real, my real drive specifically for contemporary Christian communities is to help them have a kind of intimacy with the Hebrew Bible and to be able to use the best of what I can offer as a scholar to do that with justice and integrity, but also help them to see how it means something for them today, how they can connect with ancient voices who are deeply struggling with life, you know, mm-hmm. who have very, you know, raw emotions, who are trying to understand what war means, what pandemics mean. Um, and, you know, so they can have, uh, you know, a connection with the past in light of the present. Yeah. I don't know if that, an- I don't know if that fully answers your question. I think I went off on a tangent. No, I loved it. Thank you. That was actually great. I love you. This term intimacy with the text um, is really good. I think that's exactly right. And I appreciate that. That's, um, and, and with a complicated and difficult and yet deeply literary, deeply human aspects of the Hebrew Bible, they are, um, they're not neat and they don't have, no. <laughs> you know, little platitudes that are exactly what you're going to look for every time, but they're, they're very human. Yes, that is certainly true. And I have to say, when people are going through really hard times, they tend to want the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Yeah. The Psalms are huge for this. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I wanted to also ask you about this article. This is not a um, Catholic intellectual public sphere article, but a scholarly article you've written for the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion on scribal innovation, education, and the female body in Ezekiel and Proverbs. That's the title. And I wanted to see if you'd talk uh, about that a little bit. Like what's going on with the uh, Proverbs, the proverbial um, don't, don't go after the Proverbs 7 woman, and uh, then the sort of use of the harlot in Ezekiel, or the unfaithful Israel in Ezekiel, the very famous, um, deeply problematic visions of violence uh, against uh, the female body in those passages. Mm-hmm. This was, yeah, this was in some ways a, a playful article. I, it started off, uh, I started off as a paper at the SVL that I gave in conjunction with Dan Fleming, and he gave a paper on scribal education in the book of Ezekiel. And he was kind of, he still hasn't published this. uh, So he's got a lot of other things on his plate, but he Mm -hmm. was focused on, you know, the notion of, of writing behind the book of Ezekiel and scribal education. And he and I, I had been, I had been looking at these deeply disturbing images of, uh, you know, Israel, Jerusalem as, as that basically battered women in Mm -hmm. um, the prophets and so he and I started having a question, uh, or like a conversation about that. And when we started to talk about the notion of scribal education, that threw me into Proverbs, because, of course, Proverbs is kind of the quintessential scribal education text in some ways. Mm-hmm. And the whole prologue is shaped as, you know, a parent educating a child. Um, you know, one could argue potentially a young scribe kind of educating a young scribe. So it was a really kind of, it was, a, it was an experiment to try to think a little bit more about the movement of ideas between different kinds of texts that we often separate out into different genres. 
So in this case, the prophetic writing and this image of women in the prophetic writing, and then also in the book of Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was kind of an exploration of the possibilities that are there. But behind that too, you know, as, as someone who, um, you know, my lens, I, you know, I am a feminist mm-hmm. and that is my, my, my personal lens. And to try to think too about how that can end up, how that flows through and shapes some of the work that I do as, as someone who's more of a literary historian and a historian in terms of the methods that I use. It was also a project where I was thinking a little bit more through, through some of those questions. And I was really struck by Renita Weems, who I, I quoted from her at the very end of the, the article, mm-hmm. where she writes that we need tools to read the Bible that empower readers to question writers and that help them to recognize the choices that writers make in shaping their message and that allow readers to weigh the vision that writers offer. And Elizabeth Schuessler Fiorenza also talks about the importance of critical evaluations of historical contexts. So, you know, often I think um, kind of contemporary quote unquote feminist biblical scholarship will often look at the, the world in front of the text in some ways, like what do we do with it today? How do we deal with it, you know, in, in a in a just and appropriate way in a contemporary culture? And mm-hmm. so I was purposefully trying to get behind the text to look at some of the worlds behind the text just to offer a little bit more of lens and understanding for what might be going on there. Yeah, that's good. We've talked about the deeply human and the deeply resonant literary aspects of the Hebrew Bible. There are, are, of course, also problems with moving directly from the Hebrew Bible to ethical imperatives. And uh, you, not that you know Ezekiel is offering an ethical imperative, but it's important to be able to say, okay, what's a way we can speak back or see what's going on to evaluate the argument. Yeah, I think, you know, but it, it's, it's, the, some of these texts are so dangerous to work with if you don't really have a sense or you can't articulate a little bit more what's going on behind them, mm-hmm. what the ideology is, what the purpose of some of this horrific writing and imagery, what, you know, what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't start to work with that and try to understand that, you know, this might sound very harsh, but in my perspective, we shouldn't be dealing with them, period, um, because they can be so dangerous. Uh, so, yeah, so it's an attempt to give, you know, to give us you know, some more tools and a little bit more agency in, in how we think about that. Yeah, and we, you know, we also stand on the shoulders of a lot of people who come before us. You know, we have a lot of greats in our, in the history of our, our scholarly field that, have been remarkable scholars and also, you know, kind of deeply religious people. Yeah. Who do you have in mind? Oh goodness. <laughs> Where to even start? I mean, you know, weirdly the first person who pops up uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking across traditions here, but the first person who pops up happens to be Raymond Brown. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Cause he, you know, his, I still, I'm not a New Testament scholar in any way, but I still will go and just read his, this is ridiculous. I'll read his commentary on John just for fun mm-hmm. because 
it's it's beautiful and it's deep and it mm-hmm. i mean you can just as i read it he's he is the most profoundly insightful scholar he's brilliant and yet you can also just tell reading it that there is there is a lot that's going on there um it's not just a scholarly exercise for him yeah. in some ways yeah uh, and we we have so many people like that in our in our past, but uh, you know, I think one of the one of my concerns as young scholars is that we we have a kind of a voracious appetite to eat up the people who came before us and just you know demonstrate how everything we're doing is new and um, the tradition is important too. Thank you, Mari. This has been really great, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you, Charles. It was a pleasure to be with you. This is a particular good podcast. Particularly good, not particularly good. <laughs> you can't say it every time. <laughs> it's a name, not a claim. <laughs> <laughs>